Welcome to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Laura Turner. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is going to take us into the wilds of Tasmania, the seas that surround it and beyond, and introduce us to some of the incredible creatures that have been the focus of his research as a marine ecologist. As a science educator and communicator for the CSIRO, he's now tasked with the job of engaging people who visit our marine national facility in the importance of understanding and preserving our precious marine environment. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Ben Arthur to Great Australian Lives. How are you, Doctor? G'day, Laura. Very well, thank you. Yourself? Good, thank you. So you are the Engagement Programs Coordinator at the Marine National Facility for the CSIRO. That's a big title. What does that mean? It's suitably (laughs) vague, isn't it, Engagement Programs Coordinator? So basically (laughs) what we have at CSIRO, we're quite special in the sense that we actually have a bunch of uh, what we call national facilities. So these are big pieces of science infrastructure that the CSIRO manages on behalf of the Australian people, basically. So we run them, but they're available for any Australian researcher to come and use. And one of those is what's called the Marine National Facility, which is um, offshore marine research. Uh, And that is centred around a big shiny ship called RV, RV standing for Research Vessel Investigator. Um, So part of my role is basically to offer uh, education, uh, training um, and a bunch of programs in that sense around RV Investigator and the work of the Marine National Facility. Wow, you're an important man. <laughs> then, so this sounds cliche, but the the, the news of um, rising ocean temperatures and uh, climate change on our oceans is is all very much doom and gloom. Um, I, and I, as I said, it sounds cliche, but there really hasn't been a more important time to get the work that you do um, out there, has there? You're you're totally right. When we talk about things like uh, climate change and global warming, um, really things like global warming are actually, we could almost reframe it and call it exclusively ocean warming if you want, because the vast majority, something like 95, 97% of the extra heat that humans have put into the atmosphere through um, the burning of fossil fuels has ended up in the oceans. Um, and so the, the vast majority of warming that we're seeing on Earth are actually happening in our oceans. Now, our oceans are big and you kind of think, well, yeah, maybe they can cope with that. Um, and what we've seen, uh, I guess, early on when we started to observe changes in the oceans caused by climate change were changes to the top surface layer. So the first, I guess, few hundred metres were starting to warm and change. What we started to observe more recently is the deep ocean changing. And that's a big concern because the processes that govern how the deep ocean um, evolves and changes, they happen on massive timescales. So the, the question and the big unknown is, well, how long are these changes that we've made going to happen in the deep ocean and how do we, I guess, kind of um, manage them? And if we want to, how do we reverse them and slow them down? So there's still an awful lot of unanswered Mm. questions around the impacts that we're having on our oceans. Do you, and this sounds really pathetic, but do you spend a lot of your time just freaking out in panic mode that, that those who are not in your world have just don't have a grasp of what's going on? 
It's it's such a hard question. I mean, I'm a fairly positive person by nature. Um, And, you know, it would be difficult to remain so positive if you just got drawn down into every kind of dark, depressing, um, you know, tale about what we're doing. But all the news about it is doom and gloom. We need to do something now, you know. It's... We are, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, there's, we, I guess we have a, a pretty good understanding now of, uh, you know, what the problem is and how we can address it. So that 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 you know, alone is mm. a good thing, you know. And there are there's certainly changes afoot and and and, and things are happening, in that sense. Um, you know, and I I get to see great work being done, you know, every day, um, particularly through my work. I've been involved in the ship, although you know I'm not doing it myself um it's it's working with other people and, and seeing the work that they're doing so you know we know the problem we know how to fix it and we know that the, the solutions are out there and that we've got an awful lot of incredibly bright people in this country working on it so that that gives me a lot of hope yeah no you're right i like your optimism i need to be slapped around a bit i think <laughs> take, take us on <laughs> take us on board the investigator what's unique vessel what's it like on on board so it is um, a very unique ship. So listeners out there may have been on other ships before, you know, ferry ships and those kind of things. Investigator is very different. So it's it's a purpose-built floating science lab, basically. Um, so um, it's 94-metre-long vessel, um, very tall, 30 metres or so from the waterline up to the, the tallest point. And it's basically packed, every square centimetre of it is packed with trying to optimise science and research. Uh, And the reason that is, is because even though Australia has the third biggest marine territory of any country on earth, it's massive, it's bigger than our land area, we actually only have one dedicated offshore ship to go and do research, and that is the investigator. So we've got a packet full of as much science and research as we can. Um, And the interesting thing is when when you say the word marine science to people, people often have this kind of very narrow idea about what marine science is. You know, it often involves things like dolphins and that kind of stuff, which is obviously mm. a part of marine science, but it's only a tiny, tiny part of it. So marine science mm. is anything from understanding the, the sea floor to the, you know, the ocean currents and the nutrients to obviously the marine life, the marine biology, and then also the atmosphere and how the ocean and the atmosphere interact. So Investigator was built to be able to do all that different kind of marine science. So it's it's a pretty amazing yeah. place to be when you're on board. When I think, and this is little old, um, you know, ignorant me of marine science, I sort of get a vision of George Costanza walking out of the ocean <laughs> with a golf ball in his hand claiming to be a marine biologist, but I'm way off, aren't I? <laughs> well, no, I think there are still it's some marine scientists those who are a little bit who like don't that, know what I'm that's for about. sure. <laughs> <laughs> But it is it is oh, a much more diverse could... field than a lot of people think. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, tell us about phytoplankton. Did I first of all did I cr- pronounce it correctly? You did. Points for that. Well done. <laughs> now, seemingly tiny and insignificant uh, a part of the marine world, but they are really important little organisms. Why? Absolutely. So you said a tiny but important part of the marine world. I'd almost correct you there and just say a tiny but important part of the world. Um, If we didn't have phytoplankton in the oceans, um, we probably wouldn't have us. So phytoplankton um, are basically the plants of the ocean. So we know we teach kids in school and hopefully, you know, you can remember back to some of your primary school and high school science about the importance of plants and how if we didn't have plants, we wouldn't have a lot of oxygen to breathe. Um, we, the number of, of plants in the ocean 
is huge, as you can imagine. Um, and there's a there's a figure that's kind of often gets thrown around that basically every second breath that you take is thanks to phytoplankton, thanks to the oxygen that they have produced. Um, they're wow. also important, I guess, in the sense of if we didn't have phytoplankton at the base of the entire marine, marine food web, we wouldn't have things like fish and we wouldn't have all the cute and cuddly things that we love in the ocean like seals and whales and penguins. So they, they are, um, they're very small uh, and very underappreciated, but very, very important. What do they look like? They're all wildly different. Um, so some of them uh, are quite, actually quite beautiful. So you've got some of the ones that form, um, form exoskeletons in a way, like shells, um, and they, they have often been um, the, I guess, the, the focus for, for quite a number of artists because they, they, they're kind of similar to snowflakes in a way. They create these beautifully symmetrical uh, shapes uh, around their structures. Um, so when you, when you look at them down the microscope, they can actually be things of beauty, even though they're so small. Fascinating. Um, and on the RV investigator, it's not just scientists, is it? You actually take people like teachers on board to um, pass on your knowledge. Am I right? And are they just normal sort of school teachers? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, part of obviously what we do is um, enable and facilitate and do a whole bunch of research, first and foremost. But we also have a fairly important role to play in making sure we communicate that research to people. And also to make sure, I guess, that we are training the next generation of marine experts. So, you know, Australia, like I said, we have this massive marine territory. Um, we have this huge what we call blue economy that is around that, and that's predicted to grow um, in, in the coming decades. And if we're going to make sure that we successfully balance management of our marine environments with sustainable um, industries, we're going to need a whole bunch of marine experts. So we run programs, I guess, to help that. So we put uh, teachers on board. So they're often high school teachers. They could be primary school teachers. So they join voyages and sail alongside the expeditioners and the researchers to learn, I guess, and update their science and maths and engineering kind of content knowledge. Um, we have uh, scholarship programs for uh, Indigenous students at university, so they can come along on board and join voyages as well. Um, and we, 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 we do a whole bunch of student training. So most of our voyages have students on board um, getting first-hand experience learning what it's like at sea and how to understand and manage Australia's marine environment. They would be so lucky. I would find myself so lucky, consider myself so lucky to be one of those people. It sounds just so fascinating. You were one of the first researchers to do a full circumnavigation of Australia on the investigator. Which spot did you find, and this could be like how long's a piece of string, but where <laughs> where, where can you pinpoint was the most mind-blowing for you? Uh, it's I mean, I feel super lucky to have been able to do that. You know, if you'd asked me that three years ago, you're going to ever mm. circumnavigate the entire Australian continent on the one ship, I would have kind of laughed. Um, but <sighs> I'm trying to pick a favourite spot. It's, it's. I, I mean, I love the Southern Ocean. I've done a lot of work in the Southern Ocean. Um, there's amazing marine life in the Southern Ocean. Um, it's also amazing weather in the Southern Ocean, sometimes amazingly good, sometimes amazingly bad. Um, but the tropics are also yeah. really cool. We, we did a voyage a couple of years ago now where we, we sailed the ship from Sydney to Broome, so almost half half the, the, the coastline of Australia, I guess. 
Um, mm. And sailing through the Torres Strait and that kind of area was just incredible because, you know, it was glassy calm. You could see all of the islands of the Torres Strait um, that we were sailing in between. Um, the ocean was full of you know, turtles and sea snakes and you know, even things like dugongs and so on. Wow. Um, and it was just a really uh, amazingly different part of the world for, I guess, a, a Tassie-born and bred boy to be sailing through. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. And in a moment, we're going to head back to Dr. Ben's childhood in Hobart and find out just how he became so passionate about the natural world. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Our guest tonight is Dr Ben Arthur, science educator, communicator and a marine ecologist and a very familiar part of the team on the RV Investigator, Australia's largest research vessel. Now, before the break, Ben, I said we'd go backwards uh, into your childhood, but before we do that, you did mention the term the blue economy, uh, a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Can you explain it a bit further um, just in terms of how important it is to Australia's economic future? What does it mean? Yeah, it is It is a bit of a buzzword. You're right. So, I mean, the, 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 the definition, I guess, of the blue economy can vary depending on who you ask. But I guess in its simplest form, it's basically the economy that is associated with our oceans and coasts. And in Australia, given that we are an island nation and we have a huge marine territory, uh, our blue economy is very big. And it's very important. Um, and we know that, the, that that blue economy is growing quite quickly in Australia. Um, there's some estimates of, of it kind of doubling and tripling in coming decades. Um, and obviously, alongside of that, um, you know, it's it's tied into how we balance those uh, industries that support it. And when we say industries in the blue economy, we're talking about things like, you know, fisheries, uh, resource extraction, tourism, those kind of things. Recreation is obviously a big part of it for Australia. Um, And how we balance those industries with the management of our environment and the services that our marine environments provide to us. Um, And that's a bit of a novel concept for people, this thing of ecosystem services. So, you know, we expect when we go to the beach that it's going to be clean and we can swim in the water because it's not going to be polluted. Um, That is part of an ecosystem service that the ocean, I guess, provides to us if we look after it. The example of the phytoplankton providing oxygen for us to breathe is another ecosystem service. So when you kind of wrap in the industry with all of the ecosystem services that um, the, the environment provides for us, the blue economy becomes this massive dollar figure that you can put up there and, and is hugely important for the country. Tell me about little be- little Dr. Ben. Well, you were just little Ben then um, in, uh, in Hobart. You're a little boy who spent a lot of time at the family shack at the lakes. I feel like the job that you have gone on to do and, and do so well is a very natural progression from that. Am I right or am I, did you have aspirations to be a um, spaceman? <laughs> no, you're right. I was I was always an outdoor kid. I always had an interest in the outdoors. Um, I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to go and do marine science, for example, but I always knew something to do with nature and being outdoors. And, and in particular, I had a, a big interest in animals and wildlife. And I guess a big part of that was probably growing up in, in Tassie because we have so much nature, um, so much natural environment, and the natural environment is quite 
diverse. There's a lot of differences in, you know, if you go an hour from Hobart, you can be on the beautiful beaches of the East Coast or up on, you know, in the middle of the mountains in the World Heritage Area. Um, so I think growing up in that environment probably led me to wanting to do something outdoors, um, having a love and appreciation of nature. Um, and in the end, I guess, being in Hobart, where there's a lot of marine science going on, I kind of fell down the marine science path, I guess. And you would have no problem, uh, go, you know, on the investigator in the Southern Ocean, freezing the hair off your head because you grew up in Tasmania. Yeah, right, the cold weather. I mean, we, we have, we're lucky we've got a, a family shack up in the lakes. My, my grandfather... Um, uh, acquired that shack in the late 50s. Um, it's always been in the family. So, you know, we we grew up there as kids. We'd go. I think I first went up there when I was five weeks old. My parents took me up. Um, and it's not uncommon wow. up there to have minus seven, minus eight degrees at night um, <laughs> and snow. Um, so, you know, you, you get very used wow. to getting out of bed as a kid and, you know, making that, I guess, journey outside into the darkness to go to the outside toilet when it's below zero and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. So maybe that upbringing, I guess, might have hardened me for, for, for a life yeah. doing marine science where you often are cold, wet and uncomfortable. <laughs> incredible um, career that you've forged though. Did you have, um, you know, did you have heroes like David Attenborough and those people? Were you, were you watching him as, as a young boy following oh, his footsteps? Totally. And, you know, I could I could walk out of the office that I'm chatting to you now and talk to most of my colleagues and they'd probably all put their hand up and say David Attenborough was an inspiration to them. Um, but it, yeah. it is completely true. So, uh, you know, one of the things I used to do as a kid um, was I used to record on a videotape, on a VHS, every single nature documentary that aired on the ABC. Um, and I had whole cupboards full of these videotapes and I used to watch them over and over again. I remember my sister, she'd, she'd be getting sick of it. Like, oh, do we have to watch this documentary on whatever it was again, on seals? Um, and David Attenborough obviously was, was the guy who was narrating most of those nature documentaries. So he had a huge, um, I guess, um, influence on my career and, and my upbringing from 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 the world of um, you know VHS r recorded nature documentaries. <laughs> there I was watching the Spice Girls on VHS after, <laughs> after school. Thank God we have people like you in the world now. Research was very appealing to you. You're a pa you're obviously a patient and, and attention to detail kind of man. Tell us about your your honours year and inventing your own research project. I would find that quite daunting. How how do you sort of nail down what your project's going to be? Yeah, it's it's such a big shift going from being a student where you know you're taking on information that others are giving you to um, all of a sudden the next year doing your own research, you know, and you've got to come up with something original, mm. do research that's never been done by anybody for the first time, and you've got to kind of lead and direct that. It's it's quite a daunting prospect. Um, mm. And, you know, like I was saying, I always had an interest in the outdoors, and birds in particular are one of my big, big interests. So I kind of uh, invented a, a research project studying shorebirds, so birds that live on, on beaches. Um, and that meant that I get to actually, I got to spend my whole summer of fieldwork sitting on the beaches in Tassie um, doing work on shorebirds. So that was, that was quite nice. Um, but it was, it was a challenge in the way because, because I invented, I guess, my own project. There was no real one supervisor or, um, or mentor for that project who could take that on board. So I ended up through the university uh, in, in Hobart down here, getting kind of lumped in 
uh, a group uh, of Antarctic wildlife researchers because that was the kind of closest fit that the you know the zoology department could find for me, um, and that turned out to be a very fortuitous thing because I spent 12 months with surrounded by other um, more experienced researchers who were doing work on seals and penguins and albatross and whales and I just got completely hooked in the stuff that they were doing and it was I guess it was a slippery slope from there and I never looked back. <laughs> well we're, we're so grateful that you didn't look back because uh, it's incredible work. During that honours year um, you worked with an ecologist who ran the Antarctic Wildlife Research Group Spending a year alongside seals, penguins and whales, that is just the fantasy for so many people. Was there a highlight during that time that you can recall? It, it is right. It is it is such a fantasy, and you know it's such a it's such a privilege to be able to you know spend some time um, mm. working on these really amazing uh, animals and really amazing environments. Picking a highlight, I think from that time I got so after I'd done my my honours research, and I guess you know I was able to prove myself as a, as a researcher, having spent 12 months doing original research. Um, uh, Mark, the pr Professor Mark, who was my supervisor, who ran that group, um, he had uh, a position for someone to go to Macquarie Island, sub-Antarctic Macquarie Island, which is about three days um, sail on a ship from Hobart, halfway to Antarctica. And he, he needed someone to go down as a volunteer to basically to work with elephant seal for six months. Um, you know, and, and he approached me and it was just like, it was such a no-brainer. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're 21, do you want to go and spend six months on a sub-Antarctic island catching elephant seals every day? It's just like, how quickly can I say yes to this? Um, so I did, yeah. obviously. Wow. Yeah. Just, I would find that so amazing. We um, actually spent, I don't know, half a day on a beach with, with, with elephant seals on the, the Big Sur in California. It's my only... Um, encounter with them but they're such fascinating animals aren't they the way that they um clash chests and make that noise through their 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 and it is through through the it's nose through, isn't it it's through Not their through nose the throat, so you remember that, this that, you've learned well done that's so it is so they, they make that nose through mm, that that mm. noise through their nose through their proboscis um and the, the the big nose basically acts like a big um speaker i guess to kind of amplify the sound um and mm. the, it's it's the big males that mm. make the, the biggest noise because they're trying to scare each other away trying to basically hold their bit of the beach um but you're right they're war, completely yeah. fascinating animals and you know i remember we, when I arrived on Macquarie Island, it was my 22nd birthday. So I stepped ashore on my birthday and my birthday coincides with pretty close to what we call the elephant seal's birthday in mid-October. So on Macquarie Island, most of the elephant seals are born on the 15th of October. So I stepped ashore just after that. Mm. Um, and it was just complete chaos. There were tens of thousands of elephant seals on the middle of the beach. You had to kind of navigate your way through it with your bags. You've got all your possessions for six months. And it was so overwhelming, <laughs> but so overwhelmingly cool to be able to be walking into yeah. that. And these these elephant seals, the pups, get really, really fat, don't they, really quickly. I, found, I was reading about this last night. I found that so fascinating for someone who's had their own kids and it, you struggle to get them to put on 100 grams. But these, these things oh. just just explode. <laughs> these, these guys are, are amazing. So you'll, you'll, if you go to a place like Macquarie Island or a lot of other sub-Antarctic islands, you'll see the elephant seal pups and they're born at around 30 or 35 kilos. So they've already got a pretty good start. But the, the amazing part mm -hmm. is that the mother's milk for an elephant seal is basically like cream. It's so high in fat. 
that these elephant seal pups um, can put on three and a half kilos every single day, um, which is just astronomical. So you watch these little things basically swell up like these big balloons of elephant seal blubber. And within three weeks, you know, they can be 160 kilos. They can weigh more than their mother does at that point. Um, and basically, it's, huh. just, it's just this amazing I mean, piece of evolution that you can get so much growth into an animal in such a short space of time. But they managed to do it and they're, mm. they're pretty cool. Yeah, they are. And speaking of cool, um, you did your PhD on um, Antarctic fur seals, different different animal altogether. But what, why, and, and what did you find so special about them? Yeah, they are, they are different. So they're not they're quite as big as elephant seals. They're they're more uh, people who are familiar with seals around the Australian coastline. Uh, Antarctic fur seals are, are similar to those ones. Um, the thing that I guess a, a drew me to them was we wanted to find out what these animals were doing in winter. So a lot of work in the Southern Ocean in particular is heavily skewed towards summer because summer's, you know, when the animals are breeding, it's also when it's more pleasant for scientists to be down there, to be frank. Yeah, um, to so be there's there. this big winter period, which can be kind of nine, nine or 10 months even, of we don't really know what these animals are doing. So we we um as as the technology for being able to to track animals using satellite technology and and um, tags developed, um we could get bigger battery life and bigger memories, and we could track animals for that whole winter period. So um through my project, we actually tracked female Antarctic fur seals from a bunch of islands all around um, the Southern Ocean to try and find out, you know what parts of the ocean are they using? Where are they finding their food in the lead up to breeding because that's really a critical time for them. And then also ultimately, how are those, um, I guess, foraging habitat areas, how are they going to change as the ocean and the climate in the Southern Ocean changes? What does that mean for the distributions of their prey? And what does it mean for how these animals are going to have to adjust where they forage and where they find their food? Mm, fascinating. It's also interconnected, isn't it? Totally. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And in these challenging times, Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. Plenty more up next. Stay with us. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is Dr Ben Arthur, a marine ecologist, the engagement programs coordinator at the Marine National Facility for the CSIRO in Hobart. Now, did you – I want to know, Doctor, Did I'm someone – and I keep bringing myself into a typical journalist um, – but I'm someone who gets horrifically seasick even at the sight of a boat and I love boats and I love being on the ocean so it's a terrible uh, predicament for me with my green face every time I go near the ocean. But did you take you a while to develop your sea legs or are you just born to be who you are? Uh, look, I, I'm still finding my sea legs. So there are very few people in the world who don't get seasick full stop. Um, I happen to work with a couple of them um, and it's incredibly frustrating when they can just <laughs> step on board and go straight into rough season. They don't really care. The majority of us aren't superhuman. So we, even though we spend a lot of time at sea, um, when you leave the port here in Hobart or wherever it happens to be, if the seas are rough, it takes your body a couple of days to adjust. So the last voyage that I did on Investigator was only last month. Um, we went out of Hobart. Um, we went straight into eight or nine metre seas. And then the next day we had 15 metre seas. Um, 
And that was actually the first time that I'd been physically seasick on board a vessel because um, 15 metres is, it's hard to imagine, but um, it's very, very big. um, And it means that your entire (laughs) world is moving around an awful lot. um, And it takes your body Uh, a couple of days to adjust to that. And also you have to try and teach yourself how not to fall out of bed um, and how to make (laughs) sure that your food doesn't slide off the plate as you're trying to eat it. Um, Having a shower is almost impossible because you can't get wet because the water keeps moving around. Um, So, yeah, it's it's fun in a way, but it's fun for about 15 minutes and then you kind of wish it would just stop. So before when I said maybe you wanted to be an astronaut when you're a little kid, you actually have some similarities because they're, they're the same. The gravity yeah, I guess issue. It's kind of like zero gravity in a way. When 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 the ship is rising over fifteen meter waves and you're rising with it, and then all of a sudden it starts going down underneath you, and you're still up oh. there. Um, I guess that's a bit like zero gravity. Do you question your life choices at times when you're feeling horrifically ill and falling out of bed and being thrown around? Do you think oh, maybe an office job wouldn't have been so bad? Uh, look, th- there is there is a saying about seasickness, which is um, when you're seasick, you you worry that you're going to die. Um, and then you worry that you're not going to die um, because, you know, you, you, you kind of just want it to end. Um, so, yeah, for those, for those first days or two, if, if you've got it properly, it can, be, it can be quite debilitating. But you know that, you know, you're going to come good. Um, and, you know, seasickness medication yeah. uh, is wonderful things. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've, you've journeyed to the Southern Ocean, Antarctica, the sub-Antarctic. What was the most surprising thing about that Antarctic world? Do we have sort of the wrong idea about it the us land people who don't have the experiences that you do did you learn stuff there you never thought you would i think the 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 one of the biggest surprises and i've i've been lucky enough to go to to both antarctica the continent itself on the ice and also the subantarctic um i think to me the biggest surprise particularly about the subantarctic islands is it was wonderfully refreshing to see that there are still parts of the world that are completely dominated by nature where humans kind of come Mm. second so at a place like Macquarie Island you can step ashore and you can step in amongst you know a couple of thousand elephant seals um, and there's penguins you know walking on the one and only road that goes up towards the station and they're completely unafraid of you because you know if you're an elephant seal well who cares about you know a 60 kilo guy walking up the beach Um, and they, they rule the place, mm. so you have to kind of give way to them. So if there's an elephant seal asleep in front of the door of the hut um, and you need to get out, you have to wait for the elephant seal to leave. There's no way to make it, you know, this animal might be two or three tonne. You know, I'm 60-something kilos. What am I going to do? So, you know, you have to just wait and you have to play by nature's <laughs> rules. And it's it's often, you know, at our at normal lives back here, you know, we, we're, we're so used to overcoming nature, to being removed from it, whereas in places like that, yeah. you're such a part of it. I love that. Yeah, that, that it's their world. It is, and it's 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 now a privilege to be invited um, into it for just a short period of time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, your research has taken you to Europe and Africa as well, completely different to what we've just been talking about. Um, what were you studying over there? Well, actually, most of my trips to, to other um, parts of the world uh, have been either to do some to do some field work, so to get on ships to go to the Southern Ocean or to go to islands. Um, and also to, to, I guess, attend um, conferences and meetings to, to talk about the work that you're doing with other scientists. So, um, you know, there's actually a lot of uh, Antarctic and Southern Ocean work that is done 
in, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe. Um, you know, bits of Europe, the, you know, the Norwegians and the French in particular, they have a long history um, of the Antarctic. You know, some of the early explorers um, were from Europe, obviously. So they still do a lot of work um, in the Southern Ocean. And I guess one of the great things about um, Australia and Tasmania in particular is because we're so close, a lot of that work that's been done internationally gets kind of funneled through a place like Hobart. Um, so it's a real kind of um, a dynamic uh, place to be involved in, in work that's happening on a global scale, but being delivered and kind of driven out of, you know, little old Hobart town. Fascinating. Your role, of course, relies a lot on the government of the day to recognise uh, and see the value and importance in communicating marine science to the wider community. Um, are you confident we're on the right track that we are valuing the incredible work that you do? Are we getting better at it, do you think? I think we are. Um, and I think really, as far as oceans and so on go, you know, Australians you know, by and large, are so connected to the oceans. You know, the, the vast majority of us live close to the coast. Um, ma the majority of us interact with the oceans in some way you know, every day. Um, so we have an appreciation for our oceans and, you know, we want we want our oceans to be sustainable. We want them to be clean. We want them to be understood and we want them to be sustainably managed. Um, so in that sense, you know, convincing the Australian public about the stuff that we do is never really much of an issue because they're kind of already on board. We're already kind of singing from the same song sheet in that way. I guess when it comes to things like science communication, it, it can often be seen as a nice add-on to the science itself. Um, and traditionally, that was very much the role. It was, okay, you know, the scientists would, I'm going to do my research, I'm going to publish a paper about it, which is going to tell other scientists what I'm doing, you know, and then if I can be bothered or if I've got the time or the money, I might do a little bit of communication about it and tell the general public what I'm doing. We've kind of shifted away from that model now where we, we understand that we need to engage with the whole community right from the get-go um, because ultimately, when you're talking about something like running the investigator, it's Australia's national research vessel, it largely is funded by the public. We have a responsibility to tell yeah. the public what we're doing with those funds, tell them in an engaging way and tell them in a way that they can understand. And that's where good science communication is so critical. Speaking of the whole population, there's obviously a, a generation of, of young people, you know, a, a budding scientists coming through. Are you... Um, hopeful for them are you are you are you happy with the take-up of, of studying um this sort of career at the moment from our younger people yeah i mean there's some incredibly bright people out there that i've come across in some of my outreach work and you know i kind of think um of some of the some of the things that they're able to do when you're talking to kind of high school or college kids it's like holy mike i was never thinking like that when i was in in high school or college um <laughs> so it's 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 the kind of the talent pool is already out there. It's so big. It's, I guess, you know, harnessing them, spiking their interest in, in certain areas and preparing them, I guess, for, um, you know, all of the, the, the industries and, and, and so on that are going to be different in the future um, that we have, you know, we're going to have in Australia too. So, um, you know, and preparing them for being diverse. You know, I think by and large now, gone are the days where people got a job and they did the same job or worked at the same company for, for 40 or 50 years and then retired. You know, most, most people now and in the future are going to have multiple jobs. They're going to change, they're going to do different things. Um, so equip, equipping them to be, I guess, multi-skilled um, and particularly in the marine sector, that's going to be hugely important. But um, yeah, that 
I guess, you know, the talent pool of Australian uh, kids out there is, is hugely impressive. We, we've already got it. We can do it. Good. Good on them. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And in these challenging times, Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. Plenty more up next. Stay with us. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Tonight we are with Dr Ben Arthur from the CSIRO, a marine ecologist. Question out of left field, but if you had an unlimited budget suddenly just announced uh, for you, is there a research project um, or particular animal that you would just dedicate your time to if you had all the money and, and, and taxpayers' oh, funds or whatever at your fingertips? That's such a hard question. I think I'd probably end up going back to my kind of marine ecology animal kind of roots and um, do something where – trying to understand parts of the ocean that are used, that are heavily favoured by, um, I guess, um, marine predators, so whales, seabirds, um, seals and those kind of things. They're the big charismatic, you know, guys that live in the ocean, you know. And often what we do when we want to find out what a species is doing is we do what I did for my PhD. We go and pick a species, we'll go and study it, we'll go and put some tracking tags out on it, get the information. Um, but we kind of miss the bigger picture about what, what about the how does it fit into the whole ecosystem? So what would be really nice to do is buy... Yeah you know, thousands of tracking tags, go to a sub-Antarctic island, tag, you know, 10 of every single species that was there and do a big coordinated study to go, okay, all of the animals on Macquarie Island are foraging in this area. This part of the ocean is hugely important. Therefore, we can think about how we might want to manage that part of the ocean for those animals. That would be a cool thing to do. Speaking of big budgets, um, Doctor, you've just had, uh, well, 10 months ago you had a little baby son we all know how much money kids cost. <laughs> what are your hopes and dreams for him? Do you want him to follow in your footsteps or do something different? I want him to do whatever he wants to do. Um, and, you know, I was lucky mm. enough that my parents had that approach. Um, you know, I was never pushed to go in any certain direction. Um, it was just, you know, my parents kind of recognised that I had an interest in the outdoors and the environment and, you know, they helped facilitate that. So um, that's my plan um, for him. So if, if he can go on and do whatever he wants to do, then then I'll, I'll consider that a, a job well done. Good on you. Do you. Is it make it harder to go out on the investigator now? You probably miss him a fair bit. It's you're right. It does. So obviously, um, my, my my first trip away from him was um, just a, a last month, and I went away for two weeks. So a relatively short voyage for us. Um, but having been around him, you know, every day for the past nine months, all of a sudden there wasn't this dependent thing there, and it was um, it was quite strange. And, and and when we got back, he came down to the to the wharf here in in Hobart and watched the ship dock, um, you know. And I stepped off and picked him up and gave him a hug. And for the first kind of half an hour, he was really kind of reserved and confused. I think he'd almost forgotten yeah. who I was after two weeks away. Well, I hope after seeing him after two weeks, uh, he hadn't put on as much weight as an elephant seal. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am laughing at my own jokes. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Dr. Ben Arthur. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Laura. Appreciate it.
If you'd like to be inspired by more of the CSIRO's work and the wonderful people in the organisation, head to their blog, which is blog.csiro.au. It is a fascinating site. And, of course, if you've enjoyed our chat with Dr Ben Arthur, then you can you can like it and share it with a friend by subscribing to the Great Australian Lives podcast. And, of course, join me the same time next week when we celebrate another Great Australian Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with With Laura Turner Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives.